Well, this ought to be a great sermon, having been prayed for twice. But uh, let me say, you know, the word that Gordon brought so expresses important truths. It's a grave responsibility, I feel, to bring the word of God. Because any time you stand in the pulpit, you're representing God, and you better get it right. So it's a serious thing to have the role that PCF preachers have from Sunday to Sunday. Well, everybody here knows that tomorrow is Labor Day, and in most mainline churches, today is called Labor Sunday. And sometimes people have asked various questions about this holiday. How did Labor Day start? Why do we have such a holiday? Sad to say, the origin of Labor Day is one of the darker chapters in American history. Following the Civil War and the Industrial Revolution, the explosion of factories and industries in America, German immigrants, Irish immigrants, and Bohemian immigrants poured into the country, and they were all legal immigrants, and they provided a cheap workforce for the industries that existed in the major cities of the United States. The wage was $1.50 a day, and everyone worked 10 hours a day, six days a week, and some worked longer than that. In time, some of the workers began to organize and talk about what can we do to change things. And so on May 1st, 1865, in the major cities of the United States, there were parades of workers. Some parades had 10,000. I think the greatest was 30,000 in Chicago. And they were chanting the motto, eight-hour day for no less pay. And that's what they chanted as they marched along in these various parades. There were two unions formed. One was the Central Labor Union, mainly finding itself in New York. The other was the Knights of Labor. Both of these did not advocate any kind of violent activity, but rather peaceful protest. However, there were some socialist anarchists who became involved with this labor movement, and they advocated violence. Even some said violent overtaking of the government of the United States. But the Knights of Labor, the Central Labor Union, had another point of view. Uh, in the McCormick Farm Factory in Chicago, almost all of the employees were Irish immigrants. And a strike took place at that particular uh, factory. There were some strike breakers who said, we're not going to honor the strike. We're going to go ahead and go to work and a garrison of 400 policemen were placed at the gates of that factory to protect those who were going to go ahead and break the strike and go to work. On May the 3rd, 1866, as the bell rang to end the workday, and those inside the factory were getting ready to leave, some of the strikers rushed upon them and confronted them at the gate the police rushed forth to defend the strike breakers. Gunfire broke out, and several were killed. This caused, of course, a lot of resentment among the Union. 
On the next day, the unions called for a rally at Haymarket Square in Chicago. It began late in the afternoon. It was a misty, rainy day. And the first speaker spoke for about an hour. The second speaker spoke for about an hour. It was so boring, Chicago mayor dropped by, said, this is so boring, I'm going home. But when the third speaker got up, he happened to be one of these socialist anarchists. And he began to stir the crowd and stir the crowd. And so the police came in and said, told him, shut up. And they said to the crowd, disperse. There was an anarchist in the crowd who threw a bomb. It looked like a bowling ball with a fuse. Threw it at the police. It exploded, killed several police. And uh, gunfire broke out. Many of the police shot other police because they were firing in the dark. A horrible, horrible time. All over the world today in 80 different nations, May the 1st, is designated as International Worker Day. And in these nations, most of them focus upon the Haymarket massacres. I read of one lady from Mexico who was in the United States on May 1st and was surprised that we were not commemorating the Haymarket massacre because she said in Mexico we do that every May the 1st. Not here. There was a Pullman strike which became rather violent. The army was sent in, police were sent in, several strikers were killed. There was a tremendous reaction around the nation. And so Congress and President Grover Cleveland realized they had to do something. And they hurriedly passed legislation to establish a Labor Day, but they didn't want to have it on May 1st, the International Workers' Day, because they said if we do that, will be commemorating the Haymarket Massacre. The Knights of Labor and the Central Labor Union of New York said, let's have Labor Day the end of the summer. And so it was made the first Monday of September and has been that ever since. So, a dark period in the history of our nation. <laughs> but that's why we have Labor Day. Now, we have all kinds of positions on unions. Some are pro-union, some are anti-union. And I'll have to admit, when I worked on the railroad, I found the union to be a big problem. I, I wanted to accomplish as much as I could every day. And in my job, I, everybody else went to work at 8. I came to work at 9. Everybody else had lunch at 12. I had lunch at 1. Everybody else got off work at 5. I worked till 6. And at the end of every work day, I tried to get everything organized so in the morning when I came in, I could hit it immediately and try to produce as much as I could in a given day. One night, the union steward came by and noticed that 10 minutes after 6, the light was still on. And I'll tell you, to use colloquial language, all hell broke loose. Everything just happened because I had been on the job six minutes too long. And uh, it's amazing the price that my fellow workers paid by the union <laughs> because I had done that. And yet, if it were not for the unions, today we would be working 10 hours a day, six days a week. 
And when I was working for the railroad, it was still six days a week, but eight hours a day. Everyone in those days had one day a week off, and that was Sunday. So that's the background of Labor Day. But let's put that aside and think about what the Bible has to say about work and labor. Genesis chapter 1, as we read of the creation of heaven and earth, and as we draw to the end of that chapter, we read about the creation of mankind. In the image of God made he them, male and female made he them. Interesting, it uses a masculine pronoun, made he them. And then mankind was given two commandments. Number one is reproduce, fill the earth. And number two was rule over the earth and rule over every creature that I have created and put in the earth. So the first commands given to humanity were reproduce, have big families, I suppose, and subdue the earth. In chapter 2, we find an elaboration of that sixth day of creation, and we read in more detail about the creation of man and the creation of woman. And man was given another responsibility in chapter 2. It says, God created a garden, Eden, east of the river, and he placed man in it and said, man, here is a command, a new role, a new responsibility for you. You are to cultivate it and care for it. Now man had a second response, a third responsibility, not only to reproduce, not only to, to dominate the world and all in it, but now to care for the garden. You see, man in his perfect, sinless state was never intended to be indolent, to be idle, to just be hanging out, but to be busy working. And then we come to that darkest chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, in which we find sin entering the world. And how man and woman, seduced by Satan, ate of the forbidden fruit, disobeying God, sin had come into the world, and they were driven out of the garden. Everything changed. Now, woman giving birth would do so in pain and really danger. Before, we assume that would not have been true. And man was said, man, the man, man was told this, now you'll go forth and you will farm, you work, you will earn everything by the sweat of your brow. The earth will bring forth thorns. Before you didn't have to do that. Everything luxuriously grew spontaneously. Pick it and eat it. But now he was going to have to plow. Now he was going to have to plant. Now he's going to have to do all the things to take care of the crop. He was going to have to get rid of weeds, going to have to get rid of briars then in harvest time, harvest it before he was to just care for the garden. I would wonder what that meant. Did it mean trim the hedge? Uh, or did it mean mow? I don't know. But now he had to work in order to survive. And from that point on, work was necessary for the survival of the human race. Work 
work, work. Now we can leap down thousands of years to the New Testament. By this time, nations have been formed. By this time, man has indeed moved throughout the globe. In every place a group of humans went and settled, they adapted to that area, the color of their skin, the thickness of the skull, all of these other things were adapted, not evolved, but adapted to the culture, the climate, the atmosphere in which they lived. In time, nations and races warred against each other, and this one dominated that one. And in time, slavery came to be present in every culture and in every race upon the earth. Trades developed. Did you know the first real trade to develop was the baker? People had the means of taking care of the flour and making the dough, but often there would only be one person in the village with an oven, and so people would bring their stuff to him. He would bake it, and he was the baker. That was one of the very first professions that ever came about in humanity. So other professions, the fuller, the fuller was like going to the laundromat. You took your clothes and the fuller had things to bleach and make it white. Professions developed, other tasks, other labors. Those who made jewels, those who made pottery, carpenters. Into that setting then came Jesus Christ. And in that setting was born the church. And here was a problem. Here was a man who was a master who owned slaves. And both of them came to Jesus Christ. And now they were brothers. What do you do about that? And that's a question that caused some wonderful answers that still apply to us today. Let's look at those answers. First, it still is God's will for everyone to be productive. Now, not everyone can be productive. Some people have an impediment of some kind. Some have an injury. Some have an infirmity. And some of us are just getting old. Let me give you an illustration of that. First part of the summer, I became aggravated about some of the branches in a large oak tree in our backyard. And so I put up the ladder, climbed up about 17 feet, got up above that, and tied myself to the tree so I wouldn't fall out as I was manipulating the saw. Cut off some rather large branches. They fell to the ground. Then I came down with the saw and started cutting them up for firewood. Our neighbor uses firewood in the winter, and so all I have to do is cut up, put it over the fence, and he could have it. But the problem was, after I'd cut off the branches, and after I cut off the firewood, cut the firewood, some of it was a foot thickness, I was so shot I couldn't pick that stuff up and take it to my neighbor's yard. <laughs> and Mark, just getting over his uh, motorcycle, normally Mark would jump out there and do it, but he couldn't. So he said, let's get hold of Nicholas. So we got Nicholas, and Nicholas came over and hauled it in the wheelbarrow. But that aggravated me. I am so old that I no longer can work all day at physical labor. That happened. And so maybe we want to be, <laughs> but we can't. But the important thing is, are we willing to work if we can? 
The Thessalonians so thrilled about the second coming of Jesus. And some of them were so thrilled about it, they said, Whoopee, Jesus is coming, we don't need to work. Of course, other folks were supporting them. <laughs> and so Paul, in a very gentle way, first wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians, and uh, he, he encouraged them in this way. He said, make it your ambition... 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. In the 1970s, there was a Jesus movement ministry that came to Tulsa with a big tent. They put their tent up on the hill on North Cincinnati where there used to be a uh, outdoor theater. It's that hill just above. It goes down to Valley View, if you know that area. They had a whole bunch of young people with them. And these young people started going into the malls and other places and witnessing. They started get, being arrested for trespassing. It's almost like they wanted to get arrested. It was a badge of courage, and fines were imposed upon them. Some of the young people attended Bel Air Christian Church. Some came to TCF. We were the two churches in which they, they seemed to settle. I remember one Sunday, one of the young women wanted to get up and give a testimony. Okay, so she got up and started talking about her days before she came to Jesus and what she did in the back seat of a car with a boy, which was inappropriate on Sunday morning. She talked about that. One of the elders got upset because he didn't want his teenage daughter to hear it anyway. It was quite an interesting time. Poor Gordon got in the middle of some of this, I know. Finally, the leaders of TCF said to this ministry, look, you old fines, you've accumulated great debts. We're going to pay for everything. You leave town and don't you come back. And so the bills were paid and they left town. But we had one leader at TCF that had really been, I'll be honest with you, somewhat seduced by the leader of that organization. And so he came and he said, you know, we need to have him come back and talk. Somehow we need to get reconciled. And so the decision was made that he would meet with the elders of the city. The elders of the city that in that circle were Tom Moan, Gene Griffin, and, and Jim Garrett. And so we met with this man. And in that meeting, he was talking about the need for people. And this is what we do. We had one family at Bel Air almost did this. Sold their house, sold their cars, sold everything, gave them the money and went with them. Thank God we were able to keep him from doing that. So Gene Griffin said, you know, you want people to sell everything and come and follow you, but what about this passage in Thessalonians? Lead a quiet life, attend your own business, work with your hands so you won't be in need. This man in anger burst out and said, you can't tell me driving a milk truck is serving Jesus. Boy, was he wrong. <laughs> Driving a milk truck is a wonderful way to serve Jesus if it is done as Paul urged the Colossians. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. Now, Paul wrote that very gentle thing to the Thessalonians, and evidently it didn't stick. So later in 2 Thessalonians, he had to hit him again, and this time he did it in a rather, rather strong way. We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, 
Jesus is commanding you and I'm his representative. We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition he received from us. He talks about the fact that when he was there, he worked with his own hands to set an example. And then he says this, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Let me tell you, busybodies and gossips are some of the most dangerous people in the church. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus, work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread, don't go weary doing good. If anyone doesn't obey our instruction, take special note and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. That's pretty strong, isn't it? First he spoke gently in 1 Thessalonians. It didn't stick. So he came on strongly in 2 Thessalonians. The point is this. It is God's will for us to work if we can. It is God's will for us to work and have an income so we do not have to depend on the church. You know, in the earth, that really is a history. Today we look to the government to do it. The church has really surrendered its role to the church. The government, of course, the government taxes so much. What choice do we have? But really, it's the role of the church to look after the members of the church who cannot work, who for some reason do have a need to be cared for. And the biblical pattern all the way through is this. Family takes care of family. Paul said, if a widow has nieces or nephews, let them look after her. If she doesn't, then let the church look after her. So it is a responsible of family to look after family. That's a strong tradition and a very important one. But it is the will of God for us to work. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3. Beginning with verse 17, and this is, this is the rubric now under which all this falls. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Verse 22, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is, here's it, the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's important, isn't it? If you're a plumber, if you're an electrician, if you're the president of a bank, if you're a computer programmer, if you do lawn care, whatever you do, if you're a Christian, your heart is this. I'm working for Jesus, not just for my check. <laughs> That's an important thing to think about. In the 1970s, when we had a lot of hospital bills and doctor bills to pay, some of you know this, when I was still a Beller Christian, I began to ask the Lord, what can I do to pay these bills? Because there's no way I can ever pay them on the income I have as a preacher. 
And I began to ask, is there something I can do to add to my income? Something that would not interfere of my work in the ministry? Is there some kind of a night job I could take? And that was a bit of a challenge because I would be in the office, you know, during the day. I, uh, one night a week, did evangelistic calling. Two nights a week, visited church members by rotation, operating on the premise of home-going preacher makes a church-going people. So visiting in the homes of people in the churches two nights a week. Leading a Wednesday night service. So whatever I did had to be something that could start after 9 o'clock. And I went to work for uh, Everclean Janitor Service. Bruce worked for the same company in Oregon, I think, uh, supposedly a Christian company. First building I cleaned was the offices of uh, Pepsi-Cola. And as an aside, that was interesting because the break room, I'd have it spotless, and in five minutes, some of those people would come in with rubber boots and syrup on their shoes and mess it up. But, Anyway, after got those bills pretty well paid, uh, probably after a couple of years, I quit. And then more hospital bills and more doctor bills came, so I went back to work for them again, and this time I was given an office building on 41st Street to clean. Had 13 restrooms in it. And in my heart, working for Jesus, I was determined to serve the Lord in that work. I never used a mop. On my hands and knees, I scrubbed the floor in every restroom. I polished latrines. I polished toilets. I was polishing toilets for Jesus, and they sparkled, I'll tell you. After a while, the owners of the building came to me and said, we would like to hire you to become the full-time manager of all of our properties. I said, I'm a preacher. I can't do that. Don't want to do that. But what a point I'm making is, not to glorify me, but there's such a difference when you're working for Jesus rather than for a human being, even though you want to honor that person, should, as Scripture says. But in your heart, it's Jesus' toilet. In your heart, it's Jesus' desk. And <laughs> Jesus' ashtray. The rule was when you walk into an office room, ash trash, dust, and sweep. You clean the ashtray first. But you're working for Jesus. And oh, what a difference that is. My brother and my sister, that must be our heart, whatever our job might be. Teaching, plumbing, carpentry, <laughs> driving nails, driving a car. We're working for Jesus. And what a difference that will make. And God will be glorified and pleased. And Paul says, you'll be rewarded for that. Isn't that something? Now, your salvation doesn't depend on that. But there's some kind of reward you're going to get for doing a good job for Jesus in whatever your work might be. Working for Christ. And then in verse 4, or rather verse 1 of chapter 4, he hits the other side of it. Masters. Grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you have a master in heaven. In the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, both of these have this exhortation, that you should not 
keep the hire of a laborer overnight, but you should give it to him every day by sunset. Now those were the days in which people were paid every day. But the point is, if you hire someone to do something, pay him what you're supposed to pay him or her, when you're supposed to pay him or her, that isn't your money to hang on to. It belongs to the one who did the work. That's important, isn't it? Fairness. Remembering if you hire people, you may be a master, you may be their boss, but there is a master that you have also, and he is watching you. That's something to think about, isn't it? That's something to think about. We have the master. These are important things for us to consider in our professions, in our work. How can we glorify God? Sad to say, sometimes, and I'm sure all of us know situations like this, where someone who calls themselves a Christian on the job is spending so much time witnessing they're absolutely worthless as an employee. That's, let's put it bluntly, a dirty shame. <laughs> that does nothing but dishonor God. If you're hired to do a job, do the job. And let the Lord use the diligence that you do in your job to glorify him and perhaps even open heart, saying there's a difference between that Christian, that employee, and that employee, and the reason is he's working for Jesus and he's working for a paycheck. And there's a difference. There's a difference. Much more we could say today, but let's say this. Take to heart these passages. That indeed, let's thank God for our jobs. There are a lot of people that don't have a job and want one and can't find one. We better thank God for jobs. Let's thank God that we are paid a wage or a salary, regardless of what it is. And pray that the Lord will show us to use that as his provision in a way that honors him and not squander it on foolishness. But most of all, whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. May God be praised. Thank you, Jim.